This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Bylines for Native women are increasingly showing up in newspapers and in TV news, adding an important perspective for general readers and viewers. Once virtually absent in mainstream newsrooms, Native women are reporting on hard-hitting political issues and are driving the narrative on issues important for all Native people. We'll visit with some award-winning Native women journalists right after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Interior Department is spending around $40 million in tribal communities to plug old oil and gas wells that have caused serious pollution. A portion of that spending is going to states in the Mountain West region. Emma Vandenindy of the Mountain West News Bureau has more. The first round of grant money will primarily assess the abandoned oil and gas wells. Some funds will go towards actually plugging them. That's critical to stop methane leaks and contaminated water from further harming tribal communities. The Navajo Nation will receive nearly $5 million, and the Southern Ute Tribe will get about $500,000. Four tribes in Montana will receive more than $4 million total to assess about 330 wells. This is part of the Interior's master plan to spend billions on cleaning up legacy pollution on public, private, and state lands as well. Interior Secretary Deb Holland spoke about the investment at an event in Colorado. These toxic sites pollute backyards where children play, recreation areas, and community spaces. They have also threatened homeowners' ability to thrive in the one place where they should be happy and comfortable. She says the Interior has also created a specialized Orphaned Wells program office to oversee the projects. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. Alaska is home to more than 20 Alaskan native languages, but over the last century, the number of fluent speakers has declined. One woman in Nome is using social media as a tool to teach the Inupiaq language. KNOM's Ava White has the story. Gail Smith-Heisler runs a Facebook page called Inupiaq Word of the Day. Good evening. How are you all doing? She posts daily videos of herself teaching the meaning, spelling, and provides a phonetic pronunciation. The new word of the day is Kayumikdunga, which means I am strong. The Inupiaq Word of the Day started in 2010 on Facebook, featuring community members sharing words and phrases in various Inupiaq dialects. Smith Heisler grew up hearing Inupiaq spoken by her grandparents and elders in Nome. After she began running the page in 2020, she decided to enroll in UAF's Introduction to the Inupiaq Language class at Nome's Northwest Campus. That just fed my soul. I felt so full and happy. I was so hungry to learn more, and I was like, this is what I needed. Smith Heisler created a TikTok account in 2020 and has since received tens of thousands of views and thousands of followers. She says TikTok is more popular among younger age demographics and can bridge the gap in language revitalization. You know, the health of our language kind of depends on young people as well as our older people who are fluent because our elders and our older people that are fluent, they're not going to be around forever. 
Smith-Heisler draws inspiration from elders and utilizes their knowledge of pronunciations for her videos. Which means you are enough. Namarutin. For National Native News, I'm Ava White in Anchorage. Minnesota will celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day as an official state holiday for the first time this year. Native News Online reports this comes after state lawmakers passed a bill in February requiring the observation in the state and eliminating Columbus Day. Indigenous Peoples Day has been celebrated for years in the state through proclamation. The Native American Caucus and the state's 11 tribes advocated for the state holiday. On Monday, schools also are required to dedicate at least one hour of education to students about the day's significance. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Skuntash, support by Ramona Farms. For over 40 years, Ramona's American Indian Foods has revived tepary beans, panoli, traditional wheat flours, and more. Delivery for your holiday gatherings, available on orders placed at store.ramonafarms.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976. From opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance. With offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The news media industry has changed a lot since I started my career as a journalist more than a decade ago. There aren't as many daily physical newspapers delivered to your porch, and some of the smaller papers may have closed down over the years. But journalism is still the same and still important as ever. In this hour, we'll talk with some award-winning Native women journalists about their role in the newsroom and in their communities and what it takes to tell the tough stories. You can join us too. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Rapid City, South Dakota is Jody Rave Spotted Bear. She's the founder and director of the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance, which publishes news on Buffalo's Fire. She's Mandan Hadatsa and Minikanju Lakota. Welcome to Native America Calling, Jody. Yeah, thank you, Andy. Thanks for joining. So um, last time I saw you, you were at uh, the Indigenous Journalists Association uh, conference getting an award, the Tim Gallegos um, Freedom of the Press Award. Um, you know, and, and uh, over the years, you've, you know, ha gained a whole bunch of uh, accolades and awards from uh, many different uh, journalism uh, institutions. But uh, you know, I wanted to kind of take things uh, back a little bit. H how did you get your start in journalism, and, and why is this important to you? Yeah, Andy, I'm sure. <clears throat> so my journalism career actually started when I was in high school. I joined the 
Army National Guard as a journalist, and I was heavily influenced at that time by uh, Harriet Skye, who was the mother of a very good friend of mine in high school. And at that time, Harriet was one of the first Native women broadcasters to have her own TV show in, in the country. And uh, but I didn't realize that at that time how what a unique position she was in, but she was definitely a role model for me at that time. And uh, she had encouraged her daughter and myself to think about joining the local high school newspaper. So I had a lot of things happening at an early age. And then coupled with that, uh, there was, I went to high school in Bismarck, North Dakota, and the local newspaper would would readily publish very biased uh, letters to the editor about American Indians. And I knew then that there was another side to that story, and that was something that I, uh, my mother then at that point compelled me or encouraged me to write my own responses to those letters. So that's that's where I got started. All right. All right. Wanting to um, correct the story or, or give a different perspective, um, especially with the Native coverage. Um, you know, the the one of the hardest things, I think, um, you know, writing stories about, uh, you know, our own native communities, you know, that, that can be pretty tough because sometimes you have to uh, check them. You have to look into something that looks a little, you know, funny, and um, then you come up with something that uh, maybe isn't right. And, you know, that that is pretty much what the press is all about, you know, kind of checking on different institutions, on the government, and uh, you did that, um, you know, with your own tribe. You checked your own tribe, the three affiliated tribes, uh, by reporting on their auditing process. How, how did you decide that was something you should report on it? And can you give us a little bit of uh, that, that story there? Sure. Well, when you, when you live within your own community, and I was living on the Fort Berthold Reservation for the last 10 years. I just only recently relocated to Bismarck. But when you're a part of the community, you hear people talking, you know what the community is saying, and you often get documents leaked to you. You know, Facebook, social media is very active. And and when you hear all of these murmurings, you know, that's usually your first um um, sign that there's stories that that need to be examined, and that's really really where it started. And just it led to several news stories about the uh, the, the spending of the tribe. You know, it's no secret that the Fort Berthold Reservation is sits atop the lucrative. Bakken oil field formation. You know, there's been billions of dollars uh, generated in tax revenues and oil royalties. And naturally, people want to know how that money is being spent. And then that's 
really one of the first roadblocks that came up is is a lack of transparency and spending of billions of dollars of oil royalties. Wow. And what was uh, the backlash like? Was there backlash from community members and from uh, tribal leaders? You know, it, I, I would say you know, backlash probably from tribal leaders. They don't want to be uh, presented in a in a bad light. But, you know, the reality is, you know, and this is what has always kept me going as a journalist is, when you write stories and you do get feedback from people that that encourage you to keep doing more of what you're doing and and that's that's just the way my whole entire journalism career has been you know we're as journalists we're we're writing news from our community and amplifying our community voices right and when did the uh, media, uh, Indigenous Media Freedom uh, Alliance come about? Why was it important for you to um, cr- create that group? Yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> you know, I spent 15 years in the daily mainstream press, uh, but had the strong calling to return back home to the Fort Berthold Reservation I, I had the opportunity to work at our tribal college, and then I was encouraged to uh, apply and take on the role of uh, the executive director for the Fort Berthold Communications Media, which oversees our tribal newspaper and the tribal radio station. And there was a lot of infrastructure work that needed to be done. You know, we, we got a new building, and... Uh, just internally creating designs to create a more uh, steady flow of, of news. But, you know, at the same time, again, living in the community and with so much oil revenues and um, floating around in the, uh, in the community and in the hands of the tribal council, you know, people, our tribal citizens wanted to know what the budget was. But how is the tribe spending the money? Where's the money coming from? They wanted to say and how it was spent, and that wasn't happening. Uh, so, you know, at that time I had wrote a budget story. I had assigned a reporter to do that, and she missed the meeting. And so I ended up, you know, grabbing a paper and pencil and tape recorder and walking around the tribal council building to get this big tribal council. Um, budget story, which I did write. It did create a, a backlash from the tribal leaders who, who did not like the reporting, but it, it was based on facts. And the more I got involved in telling these type of stories, again, I was the executive director. I wasn't, wasn't, I was assigning other people to write these stories, but I was also advocating for our reporters in tribal council meetings and asking for media packets so we could more accurately report on the tribal council agenda. And that was just, you know, running up against a brick wall. And and the result of that was um, realizing that I needed, well, first of all, I, I was fired from that position after a live radio debate about the media packets. Uh, that happened on a Thursday. It was a live broadcast, and on Monday, I I was uh, given my my pink slip and 
that was it. But that just goes to show, you know, that what we need is more open records, and that's what the community wants. So what I did is founded the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance, and, and that's a big part of the work that we do is advocating for press freedom. There are 574 federally recognized tribes, and only five have open records laws, and that's, that's, that's a huge wake-up call for Indian country. And the message there is that if we want democracy, we need press freedom, and our communities in large part do not have press freedom. We don't have access to tribal government records. Right. Right. And, um, you know, that might be something that could, uh, you know, deter maybe a young person who uh, is interested in this uh, career as a journalist. Um, We're going to go to a break in just a little bit, but we are talking with some uh, Native female journalists today about their career, about telling those tough stories. Um, You are welcome to join us as well if you have questions about uh, uh, journalism, if you have questions about Native media. We have an all-star lineup with us today. Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also one 800 native Pawnee lawyer John Echohawk has worked on pivotal cases affecting tribal sovereignty and Native people for over five decades. He's a founding member of the Native American Rights Fund, and he's our October Native in the Spotlight. We're talking with John Echohawk about his life and legal legacy on the next Native America Calling. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA award ceremony. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're focusing on Native women in journalism today. If you have a question for our guests about the profession or you're a fan of their work, you can give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'm going to bring back our uh, guest, Jody Rave Spotted Bear. Uh, just before the break, we were, you mentioned um, freedom of the press among uh, federally recognized tribes. Um, 
and uh, I, I mentioned that it might be something that would maybe um, be intimidating for young people who might be interested in uh, being a journalist themselves. Uh, what would you say to a young Native person if they are uh, interested in journalism, maybe being a journalist in, in, their, uh, in their tribe for their own tribal paper? Uh, I 100% encourage any young Native person that has the slightest inkling to become a journalist to pursue that. It It is a, a noble profession because what we're doing is, again, we're amplifying the voices of our communities and it's it's the young people that were really as older journalists, and I can say that because I've been a journalist for 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 decades now, and I just attended several conferences, uh, uh, the Indigenous Journalist Association conference, and it's always really such pleasure to see young people who are interested in journalism and taking those steps to become a journalist and we need them we totally need them and there's really um, nothing to be afraid of if there's just that passion to report on and tell the stories within their own communities then there's definitely a welcoming space for them and uh, you're in Rapid City for another uh, media uh, summit. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, well, actually, we, we, I'm down here with um, several family members. We're down here for the Black Hills powwow, but the Lakota Media Summit is in its second year. So as soon as I am done with this call, I'm going over to that Lakota Media Summit. And again, they have uh, their agenda is not only journalists, but storytellers of all forms, you know, creative folks and media or film folks. And anyone has a story to tell, this is how they're presenting um, Native storytelling. And I think that's really the essence of uh, who we are as Native people is we're storytellers at, at heart, and so I'm anxious to attend the Lakota Media Summit because this is, again, their second year, and I, I wasn't able to attend last year, but I really am looking forward to seeing, you know, their their take on how do we get our stories out there and how do we be heard. Right. Awesome. All right. Thanks for that. Um, I'd like to bring in um, Arlissa Basenti from Farmington, New Mexico. She's an Indigenous Affairs reporter and an editor for the Daily Focus at the Arizona Republic. And she's Dene. Welcome to Native America Calling, Arlissa. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so you're listening to the conversation so far. Uh, I want to ask you, why, why is it important for uh, Native women, Native people um, to be present in uh, the newsroom? Well, for me personally, I have to say that it's because not only to tell the, the stories of our people, but it's also to tell the story to the people of how their tribal government is working for them. Because for my, the majority, actually for the entirety of my career, 
it's to report on the Navajo Nation government. And first and foremost, the most important thing for me is the readers, the readers that live out there in, you know, Navajo Nation is very huge. For the readers that live way out, far from the capital of the Navajo Nation, which is Winder Rock, and let them know exactly what their council delegate is doing, what their president is doing, what they're deciding on, how they're deciding on it, how do they come to these decisions. So that's why I think it's really important for young journalists to actually get into journalism, but not just because to be out there into the national media, but to stay within their own, their own people and to really inform their people of how you know, their government is working. And that's, that's really what I've, I've strived to do over the years. Yeah. Um, you know, talking to people, uh, sometimes cold calling different offices and uh, trying to reach a, a certain person for some information or for a couple of quotes. Um, have you noticed, uh, you know, when when you sh- you share that you're you're also Navajo, you're also Diné, uh, maybe the um, uh, communication is a little bit smoother and a lot more, uh, you know, the person is like uh, feeling at ease with you? It's a hit and miss. Yeah. It really is. Um, <laughs> you can, I can talk to someone and tell them, you know, my name. So right now at this point, when I say my name, people know exactly what I'm calling. Mm. And I either get attitude or I get like, yeah, I can help you. What do you need help with? So it's a really, it's a hit and miss. Okay. Um, especially with the new administration. So having your own sources within the government and knowing um, who to go to to give you more information that you probably wouldn't necessarily get because people will you know, keep information away from you um, is, is something that you have to cultivate. And it's taken years for me to get those certain type of people who are within the government able to give me some some kind of information or at least point me into the right direction yeah yeah I, you know I remember being um, new to the job and uh, just wondering like how how does you know that my coworker here who's who's been you know in this position been a reporter for um, you know a decade or so how are they getting all these callbacks like why you know they're, yeah. they're always getting their e- emails answered and I can't get anything you know <laughs> but they've they've been um, you know cultivating that relationship for you know 10 years and it, it seems like now I'm in this position here and um, kind of uh, uh, feeling, you know, th- that elder status. I've, um, <laughs> you know, built these relationships with people all across uh, Indian country and, um, you know, uh, get calls back now. <laughs> get my yeah, and it's really, emails answered. <laughs> it's, yeah, and it's really sad. Like, I, pers- I get really upset when someone that is a good source of mine leaves their position. Right. I feel like it's the end of the world when they do because you know (laughs) you've been working with them side by side in private when nobody knows and and they're gone and that 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 communication is severed because you know you got to figure out who do I go to now yeah when when your favorite secretary or um, public (laughs) relations person leaves you you know it (laughs) Um, (laughs) so you um you reported on a really important story and a really tough story uh, just recently. Um, uh, tell us how you got um, 
you know, wind of this issue, the the issue of Medicaid fraud happening in uh, Phoenix, where it, like kind of literally native people were being like kidnapped and taken to uh, fake, you know, rehabilitation centers in Phoenix. Yeah, that was, I got wind of that back in December, November of last year. Mm -hmm. And at that point it was just hearsay. It seemed, and in my mind, I'm like, there is no way this is happening. This cannot be happening. Um, so when I finally realized that there is actually <laughs> proof to this is when my when my own uncle on my father's side um, had his brother taken to a fraudulent um, rehab center in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is insane. So luckily I was at a meeting because this is something that, you know, tribes try to keep under wraps. Um, people, you don't know who to go to when it comes to something like this. And I remember asking some um, Navajo Nation uh, workers, like, is this what is happening? I've heard this is going on. And, you know, I never really got an answer about this. So mm-hmm. luckily there was a, there was a MMIW um, type of meeting going on at the Salt River, um, Maricopa Salt River Indian community in Scottsdale. And two women came forward and Reva Stewart and Colleen Chatter, two heroes who came forward and said, this is what's going on in our, our, our city. They're both Navajo women. Um, We've been trying to help these people who are at these sobriety homes and, you know, they're being scammed out of access, out of their access information. And we, you know, you um, lawmakers need to know about this. And I just thought that was, that was wild. So I had to, I was like, this is really happening. I cannot believe it. So I hurried up and turned around an article on that. And I just stuck with it until it started getting bigger and bigger. And now where it's at is it's like over 200 sobriety homes in Phoenix and Tucson that have been shut down already. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's basically how I was able to to um, report on that at the beginning, and then you hear I hear the stories from the two women who were um, personally impacted by it. One of them was Reva Stewart, the one I just mentioned. Her own um, relative was taken, and that's how she found out about it, and that's how she continued to work to help these these victims come home or find a place or find a way to get home. Mm-hmm. Um. And we've done uh, shows on this topic. We we did uh, two shows uh, on mm-hmm. this topic. And I know when uh, I learned about it the first time and we were having our editorial meeting here and we were thinking about doing a show on this, I, I you know, I didn't want to. <laughs> I, I passed it along <laughs> to um, our other producer here, Sol, because I knew this was going to be like a really heavy topic and I knew it was going to just make me frustrated and um you know and 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 having to learn more about you know all of the um awful fraudulent 
fraudulent stuff happening to our own people, to mm-hmm. um, people who could easily be our uh, family members. I mean, some of this mm-hmm. is really tough as Native journalists to report on and, and, and um, uh, find people who are in our own community who are mm-hmm. victims of things like this. How do you... Um, you know, uh, how do you, um, you know, b- bear that kind of uh, weight when, you know, it affects people in your own family? It affects folks who might even look like, you know, your sister, your dad. Yeah, it's it's really heartbreaking because there was one woman that I, you know, after I wrote the story, that's when people started coming um, and emailing me and telling me their own stories, like, my dad is missing. Um, my my brother lost his life in one of these homes. And some of the, the call, some of the emails I could respond to, and others I have yet to respond to. Um, but there was one in particular of this lady who emailed me, and she said she thinks her dad um, had been taken. And she told me her story, and it was really sad because she had a missing persons poster. And they searched for him um, near Kianta and because she was from Chilchimbato and he would leave her home in Chilchimbato and get on the road and hitchhike back to his home in Chinle. And she said during that time, it was one of those times where she was sidetracked trying to help her son with school because it was um, online learning. And she, her dad just decided to go hitchhike home like usual and he she never he, she had never seen him mm-hmm. since then and I saw the missing poster um and it was really sad because it was like near the same age as my dad and you you think this is just it's just another scam there's so many scams that direct Navajo people there's the payday loan scams there's the the cars the, the dealership scams just another scam because we are so vulnerable. Our laws aren't strong enough. And when I hear how, and this is what really motivates me to continue working on these stories is I always ask this question, how is the Navajo Nation helping you? How is council helping you? How is the president helping you? Are they aware of this? Mm -hmm. And when I hear the answers of no, it gets me really upset. Because again, like this could be, this impacts everybody. And it could be my sister. It could be my, my dad. It could be anybody. I mean, it was my uncle and his, it was his brother. So it did impact my family in one way or another. And so I get sad after the fact, after I get mad at how, how it seems like these issues that are just not, that, that are very out of this world like it would not happen anywhere else, it seems, besides a native community and on a, you know, and that is what really gets me upset. And that's why I continue these stories. And that's why even though it's, it's a difficult topic, I need to hold these people accountable to let them know, hey, you can't ignore these issues that are happening. It's just going to happen again and again because it continues to happen again and again, just like the scams that I just listed. And we cannot keep our people this vulnerable. It is dangerous. So that is why I continue to report on matters like this. Right. 
Right. Well, um, definitely awesome work. I know uh, here at uh, Native America Calling, we read a lot of stories that um, are coming from uh, not only the guests who are on the show today, but uh, Native journalists all over the place um, who are, uh, you know, really in tuned with their own community and have that uh, different perspective to give to an issue. I mean, it would be totally different if a non-Native person person came and uh, reported on some of these scams, um, you know, it, to me kind of would seem like just another story and then on to the next one. Uh, but for but for us, it's a it's a different kind of job. It's a different kind of connection to um, not only the job, but uh, as a um, as a community member yourself. Um, I want to bring in a, another guest we have with us uh, from Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada. We have Karen Pugliese. She is the editor-in-chief of Canada Land, and she is Algonquin from uh, Pikwaknagan First Nation. Welcome to Native America Calling, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So you, you're hearing the conversation so far, and um, we are actually going to go to a break just right now. Sorry about that. Well, we'll uh, get right back to you after this. But I want to talk about um, what we do for ourselves when we cover some of these really heavy topics. We're back after this break. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients, and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. You're tuned to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, and we are focusing on journalism as a per, as a profession and an important role in our Native communities, and there's still time for you to join. We are at 1-800-996-2848. That is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Um, I want to go back to our guest I just introduced right before the break here, uh, Karen Pugliese. Uh, Editor-in-Chief of Canada Land. Uh, Karen, we were talking about covering some of those really tough topics. Uh, some of these are really emotionally tough. Um, what, what are some things uh, you do to stay focused on the story and um, maybe alleviate some of that uh, weight um, maybe we might carry as journalists when we, when we uh, re re report on stories that are um, really tough like this? Well, for me, I, I really focus always on why I'm telling the story, right? Like there's a public interest. Um, you're going in in a good way because you're, you're looking at a system that's broken often. Uh, you're looking at people who've been hurt by that system. And so while you're hearing those stories, particularly if they're people close to you, like in some of the examples that we've heard, um, you, you can start to internalize it a bit. But I always just try to push through and remember that there's like a, a bigger cause here. And, you know, you have faith that 
when other people in the community or even outside the community come to understand the the problems, that there's going to be solutions. So, I mean, you, it's really, you know, journalism is kind of a leap of faith, and it's a, it's a cynical profession, but it's a hopeful profession. And, you know, when I, I've been running the newsroom, um, one of the things that I did learn is I learned that, you know, I had to take better care of my journalists. I very often thought that, you know, if they were having a crisis or something, that they would just come to me and tell me. And it, it was years after managing a newsroom that somebody came to me, and I, I thought that, you know, I, they were actually doing an interview back with me about what I was like, um, you know, like, or what it was like to work for me. And I thought, well, clearly they're going to say I was so woke and I was so great. Mm-hmm. And that's not what they said. They said that I disappointed them and I let them down. And I, I started to realize that when one of your reporters actually is in crisis, they're at the most vulnerable and the least able to advocate for themselves or even realize um, that they need somebody to advocate. So you have to proactively uh, check in with people. And I make a point of doing that now. All right. And um, you uh, interviewed um, several Indigenous women uh, journalists about uh, some of the issues they face on the job. Uh, what did you learn from them? Well, a lot. I mean, I knew going into that project. So I, I was asked to do that by the United Nations. And nobody had ever asked before what it's like to be a a female Indigenous journalist or even an Indigenous journalist. So there was really, like, there was no literature to survey or other studies that had been done. So I reached out to uh, journalists I knew in the community, and I reached out to, um, we had an Indigenous woman who was a union rep here in Canada that represented a lot of the large media organizations as well as APTN. And uh, she put me in touch with some people with stories that she knew. So, I mean, uh, along the, the, the things that people really dealt with, they dealt with, they dealt with, yes, working with the trauma and how they deal with it, how they compartmentalize and, you know, try to turn it off at the end of the day. But the, the big thing that, I guess the two big things that they, they really want to talk about, one was uh, physical violence and retribution that um, they had faced on the job. Um, and a lot of this I knew about because um, I had seen my reporters shoved, pushed around, um, there was one woman who uh, she was doing a story and the son of the chief uh, just tried to run her off the road and then grabbed his, you know, his hunting rifle and came at them to ask questions in a very menacing way. So those things happened. But the other thing that they really wanted to talk about even more than that was what it was like to be in the mainstream newsroom and not only, you know, have some of those things happen, but have experience racism in those newsrooms you know people uh you know calling them squaw making fun of their accents uh making fun of indigenous words like oh that sounds funny and you know like just those kind of you know i call that like kind of racism light because it's kind of from ignorance but then there is also the hard part of sitting there and saying this is a story that's really important to me important to my community and being told no we don't think it's important to our audience and, you know, people imagining the audience to be, you know, whitish, maleish, and uninterested in anything about Indigenous people, including, you know, some of the most, you know, <laughs> some of the largest human rights abuses that are taking, uh, taking place in Canada. And so that was the thing more than anything, like with all the other, you know, crap that they had to put up with, the worst part about it was not getting support from their own newsrooms. 
to tell the stories that they wanted to tell and then experiencing racism in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a as a person who is um, you know a, an editor and in charge of a lot of other uh, journalists uh, in, in the workplace, um, uh, is there special or is there um, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to ask about uh, women who are in the upper levels of um, the the newsroom and who are, um, you know, higher up in the industry. There's not very many women or, or native women who are uh, taking up roles as uh, editors and uh, editors in chief and even above that. Is there? No, I think in Canada, myself and Cheryl McKenzie are the only ones right now that are sort of in a, a management position. Mm. Uh, so, so in all of Canada, Canada's population is about the size of California. Um, you know, so it, you can imagine there's only two of us. There were many newsrooms for many years that did not have any Indigenous people in them. Our national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, just finally hired an Indigenous person a couple of years ago. Um, the CBC, the public broadcaster, has been pretty good at um, hiring Indigenous people. Uh, CTV, the private broadcaster, uh, had very few Indigenous people working for it and only two uh, recently added to their national desk. A lot of this occurred for us sort of after uh, the 2015 uh, Truth and Reconciliation where it kind of embarrassed some of the newsrooms. And then, um, you know, like uh, also uh, Black Lives Matter, when it came up into Canada, you know, was really inclusive of Indigenous people in that movement. But uh, this, uh, the Canadian Association of Journalism does a survey every year, and they're just about to put out another one. I still sit on the board there. And what they find is that at the lower levels, um, they can be pretty diverse. You'll have some Indigenous people, uh, Black, uh, people of colour. Um, but once you get up past that initial level, it starts getting very white, and the, the more you go up, the whiter the mailer. The paler the mailer it is. Mm. All right. Um, let's actually go to a caller we have on the line. We have Mark in Bethel, Alaska. Hey, Mark. Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, great topic, and I just wanted to uh, point out how fortunate, how blessed Alaska has been historically to have Alaska Native journalists and Alaska Native women journalists uh, of course, we've got Howard Rock, who uh, the late Howard Rock, who was kind of the father of uh, the Tundra Times, which was a super important newspaper in Alaska for many, many years. Uh, but I also want to just, just shout out a couple of uh, kind of my favorites over the years. Sharon McConnell, who's from the interior. She was a uh, co-anchor on the Alaska Statewide News, uh, TV news every evening that was broadcast on um, on. Uh, RATNET, uh, the Royal Alaska TV network, uh, by satellite to all the villages, um, and she was, uh, you know, great, uh, great inspiration. I think for some of the younger uh, uh, Alaska Native journalists that came after her, and also a former coworker of mine, Margaret Nelson, who's from Southeast. She was a print reporter at the Fairbanks Daily News Miner for quite some time. So I just wanted to uh, say again that Alaska has been. Uh, and we got we have you know a number of current uh, Alaska Native journalists uh, uh, in the you know in the game in broadcasting and in, in writing. So we've been uh, really lucky as far as that goes. So thanks. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us, Mark. Actually, we have uh, Jill Freitas with us. Uh, she's in Anchorage, Alaska. She is an associate news producer for KNBA and Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation. She's uh, Unangan from the LEU community of St. Paul Island. Welcome to Native America Calling, Jill. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining. So um, you just heard uh, Mark list a bunch of names. Uh, your name's going to be in there pretty soon. You're actually pretty new to the uh, journalism community. Uh, why did you take that leap from uh, you were at community radio before uh, to reporting for radio as a journalist? Well, it started off, I've always had an interest in this since since I was a little kid, Um I would always have like this little radio and I would pretend like I had my own little radio show. So it started off whenever <laughs> I was a kid, but not something that I ever pursued um, for real in my, in my life. Uh, well, it started off, I was the manager for the radio station back in St. Paul Island, uh, where, I, where I'm from. And what we did, we, we played music and things like that. But what I started to notice is that we would get visitors that would come to the island, scientists, artists. Um, that would come and do these amazing things. And I personally just wanted to know about who these people were, just my own curiosity. And so I thought that, hey, I have a radio station, you have microphones. And so I would bring them up and I would interview them. I have no background in that at all. Um, but I just sat down with them and just talked to them face to face as if I was just having a regular conversation, um, you know, in my living room, wanting to know about these people. And it really took off, and it was really well-received. And I was hearing from a lot of people in the community that this is something that I should really pursue. Um, and that's sort of where it started. And that was only just a little bit over a year ago. And so, yeah, there, there was a job opportunity that um, my former manager had told me about uh, with Kiwanis Broadcasting to be an associate news producer for KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska. And... To be completely honest, I <laughs> I applied for it, and I thought this will be great practice. This will be great practice and an opportunity to have, um, you know, for later on down the line, whenever I'm actually good enough for this. Mm-hmm. And um, no one was more shocked than I was that I, I actually landed a job. And so I sort of panicked a little bit after that. <laughs> uh, but but I, I sort of every single day, you know, like told myself this is what I want to do. And um, like a funny story, uh, about three years ago, I was a preschool teacher for about eight years. Um, I would listen to National Native News every lunchtime because that's whatever it played back at home. And I was with my friends, and I heard Anto- Antonia come over the radio. And I said, I was like, that's going to be me someday. And we sort of laughed it off because, <laughs> again, I have no background in this. Um, but I was like, no, just wait. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to be with Antonia Gonzalez and. And here I am three years later, and I'm covering national native news for her, and I work with her, so it's unreal. (laughs) Yeah, um, we've been hearing your pieces uh, on national native news just right before our show, and um, pretty good job. Welcome to uh, the the community. Um, Why why is radio journalism uh, important to you and the community you come from? Well, it's really important because I think that the common theme between Indigenous communities is that we're not being heard, especially in mainstream media. And I think that it needs to have this 
this goal, and I think we do as Indigenous journalists, we have a goal that if, you know, they're not going to tell our story, tell our story accurately, um, then we'll tell our own story and we'll make sure that we're being heard. And I see that all the time whenever I listen to all these amazing journalists from across the country. And I just sort of wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of that arena. Um, and it sort of started whenever I was younger, um, a story that came up about the evacuation of Thunder Bay. Not a lot of people know about this story. Um, after the Japanese bombed Dutch Harbor, Alaska, you know, during um, World War II in 1942, villages along the Aleutian chain were evacuated from their villages, you know, for their safety, by the government. They were put in camps with no electricity, no running water. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> and the Yunnan people were getting sick, you know, coming down with hepatitis, getting lice. Um, it was even said by some of the people in the government, you know, it was documented that at the time, you know, Japanese captives were being treated better than Native people. And my dad was born there. And, you know, babies were dying because they were getting sick and didn't have proper nutrition. And it's crazy to think that that could have easily been my dad. Had that happened, I wouldn't be here. So it, it's about generation and being able to amplify um, the past because, you know, through all this, it, it, it's historical trauma. How do you come? How do you overcome that? You overcome it by acknowledging the pain from the past um, and telling the stories for the future, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think um, you know I've heard a couple of uh, uh, wide range topic um, topics that you cover. Are there any particular uh, kinds of stories you want to be reporting on in the future? Yeah, of course, you know, um, obviously one of the very important things is, you know, missing and murdered indigenous people, um, tribal sovereignty. I think that's very important in um, indigenous communities, being able to take back, you know, and being able to speak for what you want to do, you know, with your communities. Um, subsistence, I think, is important, especially during this whole global warming crisis. And not a lot of those things being able to, that information being given in the proper way. Um, I'm actually working with the tribal government of St. Paul. They have this program where they're taking um, uh, information from scientists and translating it into something understandable for people in rural communities and indigenous communities so that they have the knowledge and power too. Got it. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for our discussion today. I'd like to say thank you to our guests, Jody Rave, Spotted Bear, Arlissa Basenti, Jill Freitas, and Karen Pugliese. Join us next week for another lineup of conversations about Native issues and topics. Executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producer is Sol Traverso. Sean Spruce is the host. Marina Spencer is the engineer. Shem McPullen is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Pa Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Ch Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. And Tony Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. I am Andy Murphy.
Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the ninth annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.